Well, thank you. Whoa, I'm on. <laughs> Wasn't quite sure there if I was singing along. If it would. I don't know about you, but I need a tissue on those last two songs. Uh, that was good, wasn't it? Yeah. Reckless love. What do you think? Yeah. Now, um, how many of you were, uh, were here when I was last here? It was like July. It was ways back. So how many of you were not here? Let's put it that way. You don't know me? I'm okay. I'm safe. Brett says it's good, so you're, you're safe, but you never know, so I just thought I'd, <laughs> okay, anyway, for those of you that don't know me, my name is Pat Marks, and I am the uh, senior pastor of Calvary Chapel 14.6, which is just a couple of miles from here, and uh, I happen to be uh, a friend of, of Brett's, and I've had a chance to, uh, to get to know him, and this is the second time I've been uh, given the privilege to speak here, and I do say it is a privilege. I want to thank you for letting me be here, uh, and I want to thank you, brothers and sisters, for this worship. It was just something. I mean, that just helped. I mean, my week has been going a little tough, and uh, it's a long ways from Sunday for me, and I needed this. That's, that's just, that's good, you know? Um, now, I'm going to, since um, I, I get this opportunity, I'm going to make a shameless plug for some books that I've written. This is Understanding Evolution and Creation. I am uh, an apologetics speaker. I, I speak on uh, uh, apologetics all the time, evolution, creation, why you can trust the Bible, things like that. I'm the Associate Professor of Bible and Theology at Veritas International University, and so this is uh, uh, my apologetics book. I also happen to write novels. So this is my Christian young adult novel, suspense, romance, love, kisses, things like that. You'll love it. And um, now I'm going to play a Tim Hawkins on you. These are my gift to you for the proper amount of money. And um, so, you know, normally they're $15.95, but for you, they're 10 bucks. Why? Because I forgot to bring change and everybody has a 10. Okay, so anyway... Uh, if you want to talk to me about those, I'm happy to, to, to help you with that. But in the meantime, what I'd like to do is get started tonight with a little story. And it starts with this picture right here we're going to put up on the screen. This is the Reverend H.P. Hughes. The Reverend H.P. Hughes. Now, Hughes was an evangelist. He was um, a, a, an evangelistic speaker in the 19th century in London. And he worked with the worst of the worst. This was a guy who was working with people that were hanging out with uh, Jack the Ripper. I mean, these were prostitutes and, and thieves and drunks. And he was working with the worst people in the neighborhood. And he was making headway with them because he was preaching Jesus. And people were getting saved. Things were happening. And how many of you know that when, when stuff is happening, when God is moving, that uh, the enemy's going to counter that? He didn't like that. And he's going to bring the critics out of the woodwork. And that's exactly what happened to Hughes. He was the head of this rescue mission. And one of his biggest critics was a guy named Charles Bradlaugh. Charles Bradlaugh was an atheist, an intellectual newspaper guy, and he was constantly criticizing Hughes, and he was saying, basically, this, this, uh, uh, this revival stuff is, is it's just a psychological phenomenon, it's not real, it's, uh, it's just, he's a charlatan, he's, he's, you know, just a charismatic leader, he's in it for the money, that sort of thing, he was constantly criticizing, and he was constantly challenging Hughes to a public debate. 
And for the longest time, Hughes just ignored it, tried to explain it away. And finally, the guy irritated him enough, long enough that he said, all right, I'll accept your challenge to do a public debate, but I have two conditions. The first condition is that I'm going to bring 100 people with me that are going to tell why their lives have been radically altered by their faith in Jesus Christ. And you may cross-examine any one of them to any degree that you want. But the second condition I have is that you have to bring 100 people that can testify to why their life is so much better because they're atheists. How many of you know that Brad Law was dumb enough to agree to this? In writing, yes, I'll be there. So lo and, lo and behold, the, the day of this event shows up, and here comes Bradlaugh. He brings not only 100, he brings several hundred. They are all ready to testify about the great things that Jesus has done in their life. And they looked around for Bradlaugh and his 100, and after an hour or so, they finally figured out he's not showing up. And it turns out when they questioned him later, he couldn't find even one person who was willing to testify in public about how wonderful their life was because they were atheists. Not even him. him. You got it. You see, the strongest, listen, the strongest evidence that your Bible can be trusted. Now, listen, I'm, I'm, I'm in the business of showing facts and evidence and things in science and in literature and in history. It's what I do in, in, in terms of showing why our faith is a credible and a reasonable faith. But I'm here to tell you that the greatest evidence for your Bible that it can be trusted is your story. How many of you have a story? How many of you met Jesus somewhere down the line? How many of you can point to that and you go, there's no explanation for that. I just about fell off the edge here. Because that's how excited I am. I got a story. I got a story. And, and most of you have a story too. It, 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 there's, a, there's power in the name of Jesus. Jesus is real. His, your experience with him is real. And if you haven't had that experience, tonight is the night you can change that. Tonight is the night. Now, Normally, as a Calvary Chapel pastor, just like Brett, we go through the Bible chapter by chapter, verse by verse. It's what we do, and, you know, and, and that's usually appropriate, and when I go and I speak at other churches, oftentimes I'm speaking on a topic, you know, evolution, creation, why the Bible can trust us, things like that, but I try to fit it into the same chapter and verse concept. Because I think Chuck was right at the very beginning about how, hey, we need to be centered in the Word, because, you know, he is the word, and the word is the way, the truth, and the life. And that's why we need to be focused on it. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to follow that tonight. I want you to turn with me, if you would, to the book of Exodus. We're going to be studying in the book of Exodus. Chapter 3 is where we're going to head. And I'm going to kind of give you a little bit of background before we get there. We're talking about Moses. Now, I'm going to give you a little bit of background on this. Again, this is going to be a little bit of apologetic information. It's not in my notes. It's just in my head. So I'm just going to throw it out there. And it goes like this. When we study the life of Moses, the evidence is really, really strong that he lived 
right around 1400 BC, 1,400 years before Jesus was born. Now, when we study who was the, the possible king of Egypt at the time that uh, Moses was, you know, speaking and saying, let my people go, we're pretty sure, evidence is, that his name was, was Tuthmosis the Fourth. But before this, we have to get a little bit of an understanding of who Moses really was. Now, if you step back from Tuthmosis the Fourth, about 40 or so years, you're going to run into a lady named Hapshetsut. Now, Hapshetsut was the queen of Egypt. Now, she became one of the first queens who declared herself king. Now, here's how she did it. She was the daughter of a pharaoh, and she was the wife of a pharaoh. She married her half-brother. When he kicked the bucket, she went, look, I'm the daughter of a god. I was married to a god, therefore I'm a god. And they bought it. And she became the pharaoh, Hapshetsut. Now, the problem with Hapshetsut was she didn't have any children. And as a woman, you know, that, that leaves a, a hole in your heart. We are fairly well convinced that when you read the story in Exodus about Moses being found in the bulrushes on the side of the Nile River, that it was Hapshetsut that found him. And this actually makes sense when you add it all together because his name Moses is related to the Tuthmosid dynasty, the 18th dynasty in Egypt. It all connects together. It's not a, it's not an, a Hebrew name. It's an Egyptian name, Moses, one that was drawn out. Okay, so Moses was adopted by a queen who was styling herself to be a king. How many of you know that she's going to have some opposition politically? Okay, she's going to have a little bit of opposition. So her declaration that this is my son, even though everybody knew he was Hebrew, how many of you know that isn't going to go over too terribly well either? And it didn't. So for a long time, there was a lot of tensions going on. And when Moses was growing up, he was enculturated in the, the language and the, the training and the religion of Egypt. He was Tradition tells us that he was the heir to the throne from Hepshetsut's point of view. But he had a rival. He had a rival. Tuthmosis III was not too happy with this concept. Okay, because he was only a few months old when Hepshetsut took the throne, but he had a claim. And as he's growing up, he's growing up in the shadow of Moses, who wasn't even Egyptian, and everybody knew it. So there was a lot of political dynamics going on here. And that's why the story makes sense in Exodus chapter 3. When Moses kills the Egyptian, that gave Tuthmosis III all the excuse he needed to finally get rid of his rival. Because now you can't get past that. So he runs off to Midian. Tuthmosis III becomes a very powerful man and uh, developed Egypt into the largest empire in the history of the human race up to that point. The largest and most powerful empire in history. That's the background. So now Moses is out for 40 years, uh, wandering around in Midian. Now, please understand this background, where he comes from. Moses went from a palace being heir to the throne of the greatest empire on the planet 
to now wandering around in the desert with a staff. Now listen to this. If you read carefully, it says he was keeping Jethro's sheep. I mean, you got to go pretty far that you don't even have your own sheep. You got to take care of somebody else's. That's where Moses is. And as Moses, talk about a humbling experience. Then he's wandering around the desert and in, in, in Exodus chapter three, he runs into the burning bush. You're familiar with the story, yes? And all of a sudden, God is speaking to him. So that's the background. Exodus chapter three, verse 13 is where we're gonna take up the story. And it goes like this. First of all, God says to Moses, I gotta step back a little bit. I want you to go back to Egypt. I want you to go and tell Tuthmosis the fourth, this is the next king, let my people go. So that's the background. Then Moses said to God, behold, I am going to the sons of Israel and I will say to him, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? Now let's think about this for a second. This is a very interesting question. God had just said two verses back, when you go and you talk to the Hebrews, they will believe you. So why does Moses turn right around and the first question he asks is, what if they don't believe me? What do I say? Who do I say has sent me to you? Now, some people look at this and they say, well, that's an example of unbelief. Have you heard that before? It's not true. Because God is always angry with unbelief. He never changes. But he isn't angry here. He answers the question. So this is an honest question. How many of you have ever had honest questions when God is telling you to do something in your heart? You're just not sure. How is this going to work out? How, how is this going to happen? We all have honest questions. There's nothing wrong with an honest question. We just cannot afford to allow an honest question to lead us to a place where we flat out refuse to do what God is leading us to do. That's when it becomes unbelief. Unbelief is only, only when your feelings get to the place where it drives you to refuse to do what God is telling you to do. That's when it's unbelief. But up till that point, it's an honest question. But this one's kind of confusing. He says, what is your name? Why would you ask such a question? I mean, they already had a knowledge of God because God says, I am the God of your father. So obviously they knew who God was. There are some people that speculate that when the Hebrews were in Egypt, that they were worshiping the false gods of the Egyptians. But that's not so. We know from archaeology, we know from history that the Egyptians were so incredibly prejudiced that they would not allow anyone who was non-Egyptian to get even near their temples. They believed they were the children of the gods. And if you were non-Egyptian, you could not even mention the name of their gods. It was, it was illegal. You get yourself killed for it. So the Hebrews were not worshiping the false gods there. They worshiped the God of their fathers. And they already knew his name. So why did he ask? How do I know that they knew his name? Because if you skip ahead a few chapters, I think it's chapter six, you're going to find out Moses's mother's name. Let's take a look at it in Hebrew. This is Moses's mother's name. It's Yahaved. Now, Yahaved in Hebrew means Yah is glory. And Yah is the short version of, say it, Yahweh. Yahweh. 
Now, Yahweh has been translated over time. When you get it into a, uh, a Germanic-based language like ours, the, 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 the Y sound becomes a hard J, and the W sound becomes a V. How many of you know that it's not Volkswagen, it's Volkswagen? Okay, the W is a V. Okay, so that's where it becomes Yahovah, Jehovah. Okay, so it's Yahweh. So Yah is glory. They already knew his name. It was right in his mother's name. They already knew all about him. He is the God of their fathers. So why in the world is he asking, what is your name? Well, if you didn't ask that question before, I'm hoping you're asking it now. Because names have a meaning. Names matter. And what he's really saying, what's really going on here, is he's saying, you're asking me a whole lot here. You are asking me, I mean, I've heard about you. I've heard about all those miracles hundreds of years ago. Remember, this is hundreds of years of being in, in, in the land of Egypt. All the miracles that they heard about, we, we, we read the Bible and we kind of squish several hundred years into a couple of paragraphs and we forget a lot of time has passed. You know, most scholars tell us that at least 230 years existed between Joseph and Moses. That's almost as long as this country has been a country. 247 years as of this July. So what, what's going on here? We forget he's just as human as you and I. How many of you have had this same problem where you go, I heard about those miracles. I read about them, but that was a long time ago. And God, now you're telling me to go and, and do this or do that. And, and you keep telling me you're the God that, that does these miraculous things, but I've only ever heard about that. That's in the past. How do I know you're going to do it now? He's every bit as human as you are. So why is he asking about a name? You see, there's a historical situation here that you have to understand. There were a lot of gods at this time period. The Egyptians had all kinds of gods. Here's some of them. Now, the Egyptians had all kinds of gods, and they had different names. You had Isis, and you had Hathor, and you had Set, and you had Ra. You had all kinds of different gods. You see, in that time period, in that historical setting, it was very common to identify a god with a specific place or a specific people. And you will see this in the Bible, even in the book of Ruth, where it says, go back to your, your family, go back to your people, and go back to your gods because they had a god of Moab they had a god of Israel they had a god in Egypt they had in different parts of Egypt you have different gods so it was very very common to identify a god with a specific place it was localized and it was very accepted I mean you've got your god over there and we've got our god over here and everybody's happy how many of you know see how familiar that sounds I've got my god and you've got yours and Yours is just as good as mine, so we're all happy campers. Do you see how nothing has changed in the last 3,000 years? <laughs> nothing has changed. I've got my God, you've got yours. It's, this, it's the same kind of concept. But names, the reason he's asking for this name is because names have significance. 
They, they identify a person, but they do more than just identify a person. Listen to me on this. They identify the essence of a person. This is important. Here's what I mean. In the United States today, there are 47,259 John Smiths. 47,259. How many of you know they're all different? Anybody? You don't? So you're assuming that just because their name is John Smith, they're all the same? They're all identical twins? Well, then raise your hand. How many of you know they're all different? Okay. They're all different. The name John Smith is not giving you the essence of that person, is it? It's too common. We need a little bit more than that. That's, that's the reason, by the way, you get people today that won't name their kids normal names. I mean, you know, like celebrities, you know, they have a kid and they have to go, you know, apple pie or something. You know what I mean? They, why do they do that? Because they know that, that, that a name is just not giving me the essence of who this person really is. That's the reason in the Bible, by the way, that it's a very common thing for people to change their name, isn't it? Based on an experience, because the essence of who they are has changed. When Jacob had an encounter with God, it changed the essence of his whole being. And because of that, God said, you shall no longer be called Yachab. Your name shall be Yisrael. Now, what's the difference? Yachab means supplanter or deceiver. Yisrael, Yisrael means he who wrestles with God. There's a big difference. You see, there was a name change because the essence of who that person is has changed. So when he was asking God, what is your name? You know, you're saying you're, you're the God of my fathers. Who are you? How, how do I know that you're really the God that did all those things that I heard about some several hundred years before this? How, how do I know? I'm putting my life on the line here. You want me to march myself back in. Remember, these people were trying to kill me. I used to be the, you know, the heir to the throne. Do you think they're going to want to see me again? I mean, I've got the passwords. I can get into the palace but how many of these guys are going to try to kill me? And how many of them are going to try to manipulate me because they want me to take the throne? Do you realize what you're asking me? How do I know that you're stronger than the gods of Egypt? Because I've been trained my whole life that the Pharaoh on the throne is a living God. How do I know you're stronger than him? How do I know you're stronger than their army? How do I know I'm not going to walk back into Egypt and say, you know, the God of your fathers has appeared to me and all of the people you're sending me to are going to go, yeah, right. How many of you know that lots of people think they've met God? I mean, you got people all the time that say, I had an encounter with God. And, and God told me that we should all be drinking pink margaritas every day. It's a revelation. How do I know that that's not true? Well, first of all, it's not in the word, but we'll get to that another time. But the point is, he's asking, who are you? When he says, what is your name? Look how he answers. Verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. 
Now, that's quite an answer. Now, in Hebrew, what he said was hayah. Now, hayah is the verb to be or to exist. You have to understand exactly what God is saying to Moses and who Moses is to hear it. I said that this happened roughly 1,400 years before Jesus was born. Who was living roughly at that same time? Ever heard of a guy named Plato? How about Aristotle? You see, the Greek philosophers were coming up at this time, and they were asking these existential kind of questions. And Plato was asking the question, you know, where, where is, you know, reality come from? What does it all come from? Because he could look around and he could see that everything was in an orderly fashion. So Plato came up with the idea that there's these eternal forms and everything, everything conforms to this eternal form. And, and, and Aristotle was saying, yeah, that might be great, but everything is eternal and it just kind of unfolds in an internal way over and over and over and over again. And I'm here to tell you that most philosophers today will tell you that the last 3,000 years of philosophy has just been a commentary on Plato and Aristotle. Which one is it? These guys were floating around at that time. Their ideas were all over the civilized world at that time. So when God responds, I am who I am, he is responding. He's responding to that philosophy. And what he's saying is, he's saying, I am the self existent one. I am the beginning. I am the end. I am the first. I am the last. Nothing exists unless I will it. That's what he's saying. He's saying, when he's saying I am, he's saying I am pure existence. No beginning, no end. God is saying, I don't owe my existence to anyone or anything. Now, why is that so vital for us to understand? Because now I'm going to talk a little bit about science and I'm going to talk about, about apologetics. And what I want to explain to you is the most proven law in all of science. The single most proven law in all of science is the law of cause and effect. Every effect has to have an adequate cause. The law of cause and effect. It is absolutely untouchable in terms of science. It, you, you can't mess with it. Every effect has to have an, <coughs> excuse me, an adequate cause. That means that everything that begins to exist has to have a cause. But there's a problem with the law of cause and effect. When you look at the law of cause and effect, we'll give you a visual on this. Okay, if you look at these light bulbs, um, well, they don't move on this screen, but on my screen, they move. They go back and forth like a pendulum. Okay, uh, so pretend they're moving. Okay, but anyway, law of cause and effect. Okay, what we're looking at here is that every effect has to have an adequate cause. So let's look at you. You are a contingent being. How do I know you're a contingent being? Because you had a beginning. You probably call it your birthday. Actually, it started before that about 40 weeks. But if you didn't take 10th grade biology, we'll catch that later. But anyway, uh, you had a beginning. That means your existence is contingent on your parents' existence, right? But their existence is dependent, contingent on their parents and so on. And we got to keep going for a while. 
Okay, every effect, everything that begins to exist has to have an adequate cause. And this is called the chain of cause and effect. But there's a problem with the chain of cause and effect. It can't go back forever. That's impossible. Why? Well, first of all, you can't even truly conceive of an infinite. Because what is an infinite? An infinite is something to which you cannot add one more thing. Let me say that again. An infinite is that to which you cannot add one more thing. So we think of time and we go one, two, three, four. And we think, well, if we count long enough, we'll get to infinity. No, you won't. You can't because you can always add one more. So it's never infinity. So what is truly infinite? Something that has no beginning and no end. Oh, that sounds familiar. Somebody said that. (laughs) You see, he's truly infinite. You can't add one more thing to him. He's totally infinite. Now, The law of cause and effect says that everything that begins to exist, everything that is an effect has to have an adequate cause, but it cannot go back forever because you can't have an infinite in that case. If you would, if you tried to go back forever, that means the law of cause and effect would be grounded in nothing and nothing cannot do anything. So the law of cause and effect cannot be grounded in infinity. It can't be grounded in nothing because nothing cannot do anything. Therefore, there must be an uncaused first cause of all things. Now, that's science. That's the real deal. Now, if you think I'm kidding, I'm about to quote an atheist. Now, some of you go, I can't believe you're bringing an atheist quote into our church. Look, even a stop clock can be right twice a day. So this guy is right at least once. All right, so listen to this. You know, okay, yeah. Now, I just, you know, this is uh, Dr. David Darling. He's an astronomer. He's a science writer and a musician. Notice his guitar there. Um, He sells his albums online if you're interested. But anyway, he's an atheist, and I'm going to quote him here. It's a rather lengthy quote, so here it goes. Now, he says this, what is a big deal? In fact, the biggest deal of all is how you get something out of nothing. Now, don't let the cosmologists try to kid you on this one. They haven't got a clue either. Despite the fact that they're doing a pretty good job of convincing themselves and others that this is really not a problem. In the beginning, they will say, there was nothing, no time, no space, no matter, no energy. Then there was a quantum fluctuation from which, whoa, 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 stop right there. You see what I mean? First, there is nothing. Then there is something. And the cosmologists try to bridge the two with a quantum flutter, a tremor of uncertainty that sparks it all off. Then they're away, and before you know it, they have pulled 100 billion galaxies out of their little quantum hats. Look, you cannot fudge this by appealing to quantum mechanics. Either there is nothing to begin with, in which case... There is no quantum vacuum, no pre-geometric dust, no time in which anything can happen, no physical laws that can affect change from nothingness into somethingness, or there is something in which case that needs explaining. Dr. Darling is right. 
You cannot get something from nothing. That is the single most fundamental law in all of science and physics. And all of science and physics is, that I've studied over the years points to one inexorable, undeniable fact. The universe is not eternal. It had a beginning. And because it had a beginning, that means there was one time nothing. Now there's everything. And that needs explaining. When you have the law of cause and effect, when you, when you go back in time from the law of cause and effect, back, 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 you're going to come to a singularity. You're going to come to a point. Now, I, I've been studying this for a long time, and I love Big Bang cosmologists because they say, well, once upon a time, all of the known energy and all of the universe was concentrated into a single point that was as small as an atom. And I'm saying, great, where did that come from? And some of them call it the cosmic egg. And my friend, Dr. Gish, used to call it the cosmic chicken. Because you know, which came first, the chicken or the egg? I mean, we would just go round and round and round on this. And then some cosmologists are at least honest enough to say, well, once upon a time, there was absolutely nothing. No time, no space, no matter, no energy, no physical laws, and then bang, everything. Why? I don't know. <laughs> but here it is. See, they don't want to explain it. Why do you not want to explain this? Because if you admit that there is an uncaused being that brought it all into existence and you have to answer to him, you are contingent in your existence upon him. Now, why do I say him? Now, this is really, really important. I said that the law of cause and effect, no effect Every effect has to have an adequate cause. Now, what that means is, is that a cause cannot give to an effect something it does not have. Let me say that again. A cause cannot give to an effect something it does not have. It has to be adequate. So, if you are a being, it's because he is being. You see, if you have love, it's because he is love in a pure sense. If you have experienced beauty, it's because he is beauty. Anything you have about the essence of who you are, your existence, anything, it's because he is. Does that make sense to you? That's why we worship him. Now, some people say to me when I say that, because I've, I've been criticized on this, and they say, well, then you're ascribing evil to God because if we have evil and you're saying that whatever we have, God is, therefore God must be evil because we have evil. No, 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 hold your horses. Evil is not a thing in itself. It is a lack of a thing, right? Evil is only a distortion of good. Evil is not a thing in itself. It's only a lack of a thing. So if you have goodness, it's because he is. And that's why God said, I am. He said that because he said, I am pure being. I am pure life. You have life. You are contingent upon me, Moses. And Moses got this. 
He understood it. Remember, he's in the middle of all of that philosophy and all of that stuff that's going around, the Greeks and all that thing. He knew all about this. And what God is saying is he's saying, I am the ground. Plato is looking for these eternal forms. I am the eternal. Aristotle is out there saying, I don't know, it's all eternal. No, it's not all eternal. I'm eternal and I called it into existence out of nothing. You cannot have anything except for the fact that I exist. That's what he's saying. I am. It's not a small thing at all. In verse 16, he says, God furthermore said to Moses, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Yahweh, has sent me to you. And this is my name forever. And this is my memorial name to all generations. That's why I think we really ought to say Yahweh when we talk about him. It's his memorial name. It's his name forever. That's what he says. Over and over and over again, he's saying, I am pure. I am pure being the essence of existence. I am the answer to all of science. I am the answer to all of philosophy. The scientists say, we don't know how it, everything was nothing and then everything is here. I am the answer to that. The philosophers are looking for what, what is the essence of being? I am. I am. I am. That's what he's saying. That's what he's saying. So, my friends, listen to me. We can argue all day long about the creation process. Now, I personally happen to be a six-day creationist. That's what I believe. I believe Genesis just as it's written. I, I think God created the earth in six solar days just the way it's written. You know, out of nothing. That's how I believe it. Now, there are other Christians who don't believe it that way. I don't judge them for that. They're wrong, but I don't judge them for that. I'll tell them that too. <laughs> I have, okay, <laughs> in writing. But, uh, but it doesn't matter. We can argue all day long about how old the earth is. I don't think the earth is millions of years old at all. I don't think there's any evidence for it, honestly. And I, and I could give you a whole seminar on it, and I've taught seminars on it. But it's not important. Here's what's important. You cannot get something from nothing. Go back one slide. You can't get something from nothing. That's the bottom line. You cannot get something from nothing. It took you a little while to see that there. So, you know. When people ask me, when they say, you know, how can you in the 21st century as an educated person believe in miracles? Because the greatest miracle has already taken place. Everything out of nothing. And the God who can create everything out of nothing can do anything he wants. And if he wants to make blind people see, he can do that. If he wants to turn water into wine, he can do that. If he can save a worthless piece of junk like me. I know me. I know where I've been, what I said, what I thought. And I don't deserve it. And that's why every time they sing that song, Reckless Love, it kills me. Because I'm the one. Are you? 
Well, then let's worship him because he's awesome. And you know what he did? You know what he did? The same God who created everything out of nothing. This is what he created. Take a look at this. These are atoms. Now, these, these are, of course, not really what atoms look like. It's, it's just a facsimile of it. But when we talk about who God is, the Bible says that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the very first thing he said was, let there be, say it, light. light. Say it again. Light. What is light? Light is just the visible form of energy. You see, this was written 3,000 years before physicists figured out what is the nature of matter. When you look at the ground underneath your feet, when you look at your own body, when you look at everything around you, it is made of protons, neutrons, and electrons. What are protons, neutrons, and electrons? Well, the, we keep smashing them and breaking them apart to try to find out, and all it is is energy. What is that? I don't know, but it's powerful. Because <laughs> they don't know. They can run their little colliders all they want, and they just keep coming up with the same thing and more energy. Well, we break it into quarks and sparks and this and that. Well, what are the quarks and the sparks and this and that? Energy. What's that? I don't know, but it's powerful. <laughs> the entire physical universe that you know is made of energy. Let there be light. Right from the beginning, it was right there. It matches the physics. Protons, neutrons, and electrons, the God who created this could also tell them what to do. Now, when we think about protons, neutrons, and electrons, I really want you to understand a little bit more about what they really are. If you were to take a proton in a, in a helium atom or hydrogen atom, one proton, one electron, if you were to blow up the proton to the size of a basketball, the nearest electron would be 3,000 miles away. So what does that tell you? That most of everything as you know it is empty space. Let me say that again. Most of everything that you know is just empty space. It's just energy. And God was the one that said, let there be light. And God was the one that told that energy what to do. And he designed it into this deoxyribonucleic acid. And there is simply no natural process that can do this. You can have all the chemistry in the world. You can take all of the chemistry that you want and put it in every test tube that you want. And you can, you can mix it up all you want. You will never get this. It is absolutely, totally, and in all other ways, impossible. The only way for you to get DNA is if it's designed and built. There's no other way. Every experiment that they've ever done has never been able to produce anything like this. Now, there's a reason for that. When you look at this DNA, it's in a helix, okay? And in that helix, it's going to have amino acids and nucleotide sequences and things. It's kind of complicated, phosphates and sugars and all this. Okay, but the amino acids are what we call racemized. That means they're all optically pure. And everybody's looking at me going, huh? Okay, what that means is that they're all left-handed, every single one of them. All your nucleotide bases are right-handed. All of your amino acids are left-handed. Now, there are about 3 billion of them in your DNA right now, and they are all left-handed. If there was even one right-handed in that entire sequence, the whole thing would break apart and not work. 
So what are the chances? Now, in, in nature, your amino acids exist in a 50-50 ratio of left-handed to right-handed amino acids. There is nothing within the nucleotide sequence that is going to naturally draw only left-handed amino acids. Doesn't happen. They draw 50-50. So what are the chances that you're going to get a sequence three billion letters long that's all left-handed by random chance? Uh, let me see. The odds are one chance in 10 to the 40,000th power. Okay, that's a, that's a one with 40,000 zeros. If those zeros were the size of my hand right now, it would go that way for half a mile. Now, anything, scientists say that anything one times 10 to the 50th or better is 100% impossible. That's the, called the impossibility threshold. One times 10 to the 50th. But the odds of getting that from random chemistry is one chance in 10 to the 40,000th power. Now, let me explain how big that number is. If you were to count right now and go one, two, three, four, nice and steady like a metronome and just start counting. Every, one ordinal number every second. By the time you did this, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, for 30 billion years, you would get to 10 to the 18th. Not quite there yet. Let's keep trying. In other words, if you have one random chemistry trial every second for 30 billion years, you haven't even got a tenth of where you need to be in order to make that. That is beyond impossible. It is to a place where only a fool would say there is no God. Oh, there's more. You know, all these lab experiments, they come up with these lab experiments and say, we're going to create, you know, uh, life in, the, in a test tube, you know. And they say, well, this is a very exciting experiment because we created the building blocks of life, some of the building blocks. And I say, yeah, that's kind of like you've made three bricks and you think you got the Empire State Building, okay? That's, that's really what you're saying. There's no lab experiment anywhere at any time that has showed anything even remotely close to what we're talking about here. In fact, Sir Francis Crick. Now, Sir Francis Crick is the co-discoverer of the DNA helix, of, the, of, the, of how DNA is structured. He was an atheist. He's not an atheist anymore because he's currently dead. <clears throat> so when you're dead, you're no longer an atheist because you find out you were wrong. But anyway... He was an atheist. <clears throat> so this is what he said. He said, an honest man, armed with all the knowledge available to us now, could only state that in some sense, see, he's going to hedge his bet, the origin of life appears at the moment to be almost a miracle. So many are the conditions which would have had to been satisfied to get it going. The truth is, when you look at the laws of cause and effect, there had to be an uncaused cause, a being with no beginning and no end. He had to be a personal being. Why? Because you're a person. Remember, whatever you have, he is in the pure sense. So if you have a personality, he has one. Because he is personality. Does that make sense? We talk about the miracle of the laws of cause and effect. We talk about the miracles of biochemistry. We talk about all of these things. 
And it brings us back to this central point. God said, I am. So the next time you get a little worried about stuff, how many of you get worried about stuff? How many of you know that God is not in the least bit worried about your finances? How many of you know that God is not in the least bit worried about your health? No, he's not. Now, you might be worried about it, but why? Why are you worried about it? He's the one that decides when you live and when you die. Now, you know, I know that's hard to hear, but last June, on June the 9th, I had a massive heart attack from which they say my particular type of heart attack, 95% of the people don't survive it. He decided I was going to be here tonight, so here we are. He decides when you live, when you die. He's the one that decides how your DNA is going to be fashioned, what skills, what talents, what abilities, what opportunities you have. He is the beginning. He is the end. And when you get worried about stuff, quit worrying about it. He's the great I am. He's got it covered. Your job is to put your faith in him. But the question would then be, why? How? Now, let's think about this for a second. Because there are three groups of people in this room, even now. We talk about the ultimate miracle is God having created everything out of nothing. But God did something else. He became, took on a human form to chase you down, to kick down any argument. To come after you no matter where you've strayed. Why do you do this? You see, now if you're a little squeamish, don't look at this next one. But this is what Jesus did for you. But why did he have to? Now we're going to get back into this great I am thing for a second. Do you remember that when the burning bush spoke, when God's voice spoke out of the burning bush, he said, Moses, take off your shoes. Why? You're on holy ground. It's not the ground that's holy. <laughs> it's because you're in the presence of the living God. Why did he have to do this? Why? Remember I said, in order for an effect to exist, it has to have a cause, and the cause has to be adequate to the effect. You see... What's important is that God's nature, he said, I am his pure existence. It's kind of like this. If you look at the sun, the sun radiates its energy 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It is what it is. It doesn't make any apologies. It is what it is, and it cannot be anything other than what it is. And God is the same way. He cannot be anything other than who he is. And he is absolute perfection. He is absolute light. He is perfect love. And like that sun, it radiates all the time. Now, how many of you know the sun is hot? It's 93 million miles from here and it can still burn you. That's hot. That's why we've got sunscreen. Okay? Now, if you're 93 million miles away and it can still burn you, how much more is it going to burn you if you get closer? 
is going to really hurt you. It may not want to hurt you, but it's its nature. And in the same way, listen to me. When God said, I am who I am. I am the self-existent one. It means my being and my perfection are what they are and cannot be anything other. I am holy, absolutely and utterly holy. Nothing like me, no one like me. And you cannot be in the presence of someone that is that holy if you have even the slightest contamination. That would be like taking a paper airplane and throwing it at the sun. You cannot get near him. The Bible says he is like a consuming fire. His holiness is so perfect and so utter. You would be consumed if you got anywhere near him. Why? Because Romans 3.23 says everyone has sinned. Everyone has fallen short of the glory of God. Every single person. If you have ever told a lie, then you are a liar. If you have ever stolen anything, it could be a paper clip from work and it wasn't yours, you're a thief. If you have ever had an adulterous sexual thought towards someone who's not your spouse, you're an adulterer in your heart. If you've ever been so angry at someone you wish they were dead, you're a murderer as far as God is concerned because God does not do those things. He is who he is. He cannot be anything other. But you and I, we have betrayed his image. Now, it doesn't matter if it's in little ways or big ways. If that's where you're at, and it is, then you're contaminated but Romans 6.23 says this, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, when he means by death, what would I say here? You may be looking at me and saying, well, I'm not, I'm not a Christian and I'm still alive. No, you're not. You just think you are. Your heart may be squeezing blood, but as far as God is concerned, you are dead. Why? Because if you have life, he is life. And if you are betrayed, if you are separated from him, you're separated from life. That's the definition of death. The wages of your sin is death. You are separated from God. That's why Jesus had to die on the cross. Because the wages of sin is death. Now let's think about it for a second. The law of cause and effect the cause is sin. The effect is death. That's the law. The most proven law in all of science, it's Galatians chapter 6, the law of sowing and reaping. It's right there. But here comes Jesus, who never sinned and yet died. Now we've got a problem in the law of cause and effect. You've got the law that says, if you sin, you will die. You have Jesus who never sinned and died. And when the, these two things ran into each other, it was a massive collision. It was a collision so explosive, it literally caused death to work backwards. And Jesus rose from the dead. Law of cause and effect. And that brings us to the final thing, and I'll close with Romans 10, 9. It says this. 
If you will openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is by believing in your heart that you are made right with God, and it's by openly declaring your faith that you are saved. Now, the Greek word here for believe is a word that's a little stronger than in English, because I believe I'll have another Coke is not quite as strong as what this means here. Because the word is actually pistis in Greek, and it means to be utterly sold out to. That's what he's talking about. And what, he, what he's saying is if you, if you will declare that he is my Lord, I get it. He is the great I am. I am alienated from him because I betrayed his nature. And I get it. I, I can't get back to him. I don't care how many good works I do. I don't care how much religious stuff I do. I have to accept you coming to me is what you're saying to God. Now, when we talk about I believe, and I'm going to close with this. Four out of five people in the United States today claim to be Christians. Four out of five. How many of you know that's probably not true? You know why? Because those same four out of five, Barna polled them, only 16% of them said that their relationship with God is their highest priority. Okay, let me, let me get this right. Four out of five people say they're Christians, but only 16% say that it's their highest priority. That's kind of like me looking at my wife and saying, I only sleep with you 16% of the time, but I really love you. Now, how many of you know my wife wants 100%? Not 16%. You see, believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ means 100%. And that's the key that we want to get here and what we've been talking about in Exodus chapter 3. Jesus rose from the dead so that you could become a child and a friend to God. But you've got to be sold out to making Jesus the king of your life in order to become his friend. Simple as that. Cause, effect. The law of cause and effect. You have to have the great I am at the beginning. You have to. It's the same in your personal life. There's a lot of people in my line of work. There's a lot of people that call themselves Christians. But they don't understand this concept. I hope that you do. Let's pray. Holy Father, we come before you in the name of Yeshua. Because you are the beginning, you are the end, you are the first, you are the last. Nothing in this universe could exist unless you called it into existence. We are contingent beings. And you gave us a freedom of will. We could defy you, and we all have. And that alienates us from you. But you, you are love. You don't just have love for us. You are love. And your love never changes. You will always love the repentant heart. And if there is someone, Father, in this room who for the first time went, wow, I, I never understood it before. And if that's you, every head is bowed and every eye is shut. Nobody's looking around. Nobody's going to embarrass you. If for the first time you're getting it, that God 
is more than just a good idea. He's more than just a religious thing that you add to your life. He is the great I am. And you wouldn't exist unless he willed you into existence. And this moment, you recognize that you need to acknowledge him as your God. Acknowledge him as your king. The Bible says right here, we read it just a few minutes ago, that if you'll do that, he will wash your sins away as if they never existed. And then you can enter into the presence of the Holy One. And the way that happens, it's a choice of the will. It's a choice of your heart. You simply have to say to him, and you can just kind of follow along with what I'm about to say. Just say this, Father God, I acknowledge that you are the great I am. And I confess, I have done and I have said and I have thought things that you hate. And just like the sun would consume me because of what I have done. If I got too near you, you would consume me too. But I believe that the penalty of death that I deserve you took upon yourself. I believe Jesus died on the cross for me. And I believe he rose again from the dead. And I'm putting my trust in him. If you made that declaration from your heart, then he will wash your sins away. And if that was you, every head is bowed, every eye is shut. Don't look around. Just slip up your hand. Let me see it. Father God, I praise you for the hand that I see. And I pray in the name of Yeshua that you pour out your Holy Spirit the way you swore by yourself that you would. And that you take that soul to be with you. But Lord, I know that there's a second group. You've been a Christian a long time, but these words have become too familiar. But maybe tonight you got a sense of a greater depth of who God is. And Father God, for those people, I pray that you bless them, that they walk out this door with a new spring in their step. Not worried about the stuff anymore because you made all the stuff and you can do what you want with it. They don't have to fear. They don't have to fear because they can trust you. I pray you give them a new joy. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Sorry I kept you a little long. Thank you.